0: Let's uh, let's pray before we dive into His Word this morning. Father, thank you for Your grace. We don't often think of our sin as a, a blissful thought, but when we realize that it was nailed to the cross, and it's not on us, You bore our sins in Your body on the tree. What what a treasure the gospel is! Help us to to treasure the gospel together this morning, as we as we listen to your voice, as we listen to your word through your through your Scripture. Be at work in our hearts and bring our hearts and our minds and our actions into line with the truth of the gospel that we treasure. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We're in Philippians chapter 2. But I want to start with a a verse out of Third John. John writes, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. As indeed you are walking in the truth. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Here in Philippians chapter 2, we get a glimpse of Paul's heart for this church. His heart as a father for his dearly loved children. There is no greater joy than that of a father to see his children walking in The truth, believing the gospel, living consistent with the good news of the gospel. Paul has been exhorting the Philippians to gospel unity. He encouraged them back in chapter 1 verse 27 to live consistent with your new gospel identity. Let your life as citizens be worthy of, consistent with, in line with, in step with your blood-bought gospel identity. He wants to hear that they are standing firm in their spirit-wrought unity with one another. That they are contending together as athletes on the same team. Striving together for the same goal, for the faith of the gospel. It is out of this gospel unity, the gospel unity of the church, that the gospel witness shines here in chapter 2, he holds up the example of Jesus. Jesus self-humbling, lay down your life, sacrifice for others. Jesus now exalted by his Father as Lord over all, to whom we owe our allegiance. Jesus who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus who says that anyone wishes who wishes to be great in my kingdom must be the servant the slave of all. Paul affirms their consistent life of faithful obedience to the gospel in chapter 2, verse 12, and he encourages them, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. John Edie, a pastor and professor at University of Glasgow, Scotland, back in 1857, wrote these words, Work out with fear and trembling. For God it is that worketh in you. Engage in the duty, for God prompts and enables you. Engage in it with fear and trembling, emotions which the nature of the work and such a consciousness of the divine presence and cooperation ought always to produce. There's two dangers here, and Paul balances us between them. On the one side, when he says, work out your own salvation, we might be tempted to take credit for our own salvation. As if we, by our own efforts, earned our salvation. As if because of our performance, God now owes me something. As if the cross of Christ was empty and unnecessary. So he reveals God's prior working to which our working is only ever a response. Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work. Even our willing finds its source in God. We can't even take credit for our own willing. Let alone our working because it rests on God's working in us. All our working is working out of God's prior work in us. We love because He first loved us. We forgive because we have been forgiven much. We work because He has worked in us. The other danger is to rest in God's sovereign work in us so much that we become complacently passive and inactive. So that we do nothing but just wait for God to do something, God to work in us. I mean, if he wants me to obey, well, then he'll bring that about. If he wants me to, to be holy, then, well, I don't, I don't have to put forth any effort. I'll just wait for him to make me holy. I'll just wait for him to work that in me, and so I'll just sit here and do nothing. This attitude implies that if I am not living the way He has called me to live, then ultimately it is God's fault for failing to cause me to do it. So He commands us here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. John Eady again puts it this way, the Apostle writes to persons who have received salvation, Not writing to unbelievers, writing to the church. These are saved people. These are justified believers in Jesus. The apostle writes to persons who have received salvation, and he bids them carry it out. And who doubts that man's highest energies are called out in the work, that every faculty and feeling is thrown into earnest operation? What self-denial and vigilance. What wrestling. What study of the Lord's example. What busy and humble obedience. What struggles with temptation. What putting forth all of that which is within us. What fervent improvement of all the means of grace. Industry is eager and resolute as if no grace had been promised. But as if... It all depended on itself. The believer's own conscious and continuous effort in the work of his sanctification is a very prominent doctrine of scripture and the apostle often describes his own unrelaxing diligence. Work out your own salvation because it's God who works in you both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. John Murray puts these two sides together for us. God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours so that the conjunction or coordination of both produced the required result. No, God works in us and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast or holding forth. The word can mean both things. The word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Work out in daily life what God has worked into you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What does that look like? Well, everything you do, do it like this. Do it in this way, without grumbling, without disputing. This is evidence that you belong to your Father in Heaven. Become who who you really are. Embrace and live consistent with The gospel with your new identity in Christ. See see the gospel connection here? You shine, that's outward, in a dark world by your gospel unity, by rejecting discontent, by rejecting unnecessary division. In your unity with other believers, with the church, you both hold fast to the word of truth, And you hold up the word of truth as a gospel witness. We put the good news on display by doing all things without grumbling and disputing by our gospel-shaped unity. Gospel-shaped relationships with one another result in a gospel witness that is attractive to the world. Do you see that here in the text? Gospel shaped unity with one another results in an in a attractive witness, a shining witness to the world. Paul brings them back to the ultimate aim, the ultimate aim when salvation finds its consummation on the day of Christ. brothers and sisters do you do you realize do you remember do you know Jesus? Is coming back. Amen. Jesus is coming back for us, for his bride, for the church. Jesus, Ephesians 5, intends to present the church to himself without spot, without blemish, in splendor, shining, radiant bride. And God is at work in us, both to will and to work for His own sovereign good pleasure. So, work out your own salvation. Let your salvation work itself out in gospel-shaped unity among believers. Longing for His glorious appearing. He's coming back. The day of Christ is coming. Paul expressed his confidence back in chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so, out of that confidence, that gospel confidence, he prays in chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, it is my prayer that your love, may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul has his eyes fixed on the day of Christ and so should we. It should be our greatest hope, our greatest motivation, shape everything we do and how we do everything we do. Think about for a moment your your biggest complaint, your biggest dispute. Will you still be holding on to that when Jesus comes back? Put that in perspective. This is such a big grievance I have. In light of... In light of his return. When he... ah, Put it in perspective of the return, the day of Christ. Paul urges the Philippians to hold fast to and to hold forth the word of life in this way... Without grumbling and disputing. For this purpose. Verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ. I may be proud. That I did not run in vain. Or labor in vain. Now what's going on here? I thought pride was a bad thing. In the Bible. Pride was sin. Is Paul simply pursuing his own ability. To boast on the day of Christ. Ah look what I accomplished. And and. You've got to toe the line so that I can have that opportunity to boast. Is is he seeking actually to walk into heaven with pride in hand? Of course not. This is the pride of a father who says on game day, son, get out there. Make me proud. Not about me. I want you to do What you were created to do, I want you to shine. Paul's greatest joy was seeing his churches thrive. He said to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Again, he's got his eyes fixed on the prize, on the return of Jesus. What's our hope? What's our joy? What's our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. With the Corinthians, he anticipated, 2 Corinthians 1, mutual boasting, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, there it is again, that day, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Look at this church. It's awesome. Look at what God has done. Yeah, look at look at our leaders. Look at our apostles. Look at... Yeah! It's that mutual boasting on the day of Christ. Look what God has done. Paul's joy, Paul boast, Paul's boasting was in his spiritual children. But this also came with a weight of responsibility. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. He says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Again, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28. Apart from other things, there is the daily... He's, He's listing his laundry list of, I've been beaten up, I've been abused, I've been left for dead, I've been shipwrecked. All this stuff that's happened to me. All the oppression that I've endured. And he says, apart from all other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He carries that weight of responsibility as a father. For his children. Uh, To the Thessalonians, he describes his relationship to them, second, or first Thessalonians 2, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And anybody who's been there, experienced that, you know that's 24-7, 365, you're on call, doesn't matter if you're tired, you do what you got to do to care for your infant. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And, he says, like a father with his children. Both imagery combined. He says, that, I'm staying up late at night taking care of you. I'm exhorting, I'm encouraging you. Paul took his responsibility seriously. And if his greatest joy was to see his children walking in the truth. His greatest fear was, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul was confident of the Philippians that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he was confident that if they continued holding fast to the word of life, that he would not have run in vain or have labored in vain. Paul told the elders in the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He says, I'm I'm going to Jerusalem. I'll probably be arrested. You'll probably never see me again. He says, they're like, oh, don't go then. Don't go. He's like, of course I'm going. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. How much could we learn from that? How much marketing is based on, oh, you could live a little longer, look a little better, be a little healthier. I mean, not that those things are wrong or bad, but he says, I don't count my life of any value. Or as precious to myself, the biblical perspective is that our life is a vapor. It's here right now and it is gone. So you know what? Have another donut. (laughs) <laughs> that's theology at work right, practical, okay Let's take it for what it's worth that's not in the Bible It's just I do not account my life eat healthy, it's a good thing to do just, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news, the gospel of the grace of God. He told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. This is his pastor's heart, his shepherd's heart, his father's heart for his people. He even told the Romans... In Romans chapter 9, verse 3, thinking of his the, the the Jewish nation that had rejected their Messiah, he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He says, My heart's desire is that they would be saved, that they would come to know their Messiah. I'm willing to sacrifice whatever. However much to spend and be spent to see my children walking in the truth. Here in Philippians 2.17 he tells this church at Philippi, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now this, he's picking up Old Testament sacrificial imagery. You need to be reading your Old Testament. Because you miss so much if you don't have a grasp of familiarity with the, the content of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrificial system is the imagery that's behind his statement here. A sacrificial animal had to be without blemish, without defect, for it to be a legitimate offering you couldn't take the weak the sick the well it's going to die anyway so i'll just you know i it's diseased i can't eat it so i'll just offer that to the lord no no you offer the best to the lord that with, which is without is is he not worthy of your first and your best do you give him your leftovers A sacrificial animal was to be without blemish, without defect. But it was not only animals that were offered. There were grain offerings. Oil was required to be put with those offerings. Wine was also required to be offered with the offerings. That's a libation or a drink offering poured out on or around with the offering of the animal. The wine was not the main offering, but it was to accompany the offering. If you think about this as a big... I mean, you, you look at the, the tabernacle and then the temple. You had a giant altar of burnt offering. Think barbecue grill. Big old slab of side of beef, side of whatever sheep, lamb. Barbecuing that thing up. Some of it was actually eaten. Some of it was a meal offering to, to be shared among the priests, among the worshipers. Man, what goes better with a good side of steak than some, some roasted grain and a, and a nice glass of wine? That's what was going on here. This is God saying, this is my house and this is a place for feasting in my presence. There were specific temple vessels when you read, you know, how to build the tabernacle and then the temple. There were, there were special vessels that were made for this purpose. They were set apart for this purpose of pouring out the wine of the offering to the Lord. Pouring it out before the Lord. The wine was not the main offering, but it was to accompany the offering. Paul, that's the background. Now Paul is taking that picture, this, this side of beef on the altar, pouring out wine on the on the offering. He's he's picturing that sacrificial offering as the faith, the side of beef. That's the faith of the believers, those who are putting their their trust in Jesus. And he pictures himself as the drink offering that's being poured out on their sacrifice. And, and understand faith. It's like believing Jesus, is that costly? I could ask for a show of hands. I know some of you know it can be costly to follow Jesus. It can be costly to say yeah, what I used to believe that? I don't believe that anymore. I've met Jesus and whatever the cost, I'm going to follow Him. I'm going to trust Him. I'm not trusting in this anymore. That can offend people. That can damage relationships. That can hurt a lot. There's a cost involved following Jesus. And in Philippi, that, that was the deal. I mean, the, the Jews were meeting out by the riverside. They were not popular or very welcome. In fact, well, Paul got a, a real warm welcome in Philippi. Do you remember? They beat him with rods, threw him in the stocks in the inner prison. And then tried to dispose of him because they realized, oh, he's a Roman citizen. We're a Roman colony. We just mistreated this guy. That was wrong. Let's just get him out of here quietly without making a big scene. That's the kind of, that, that's the kind of cost that following Jesus or proclaiming the truth about Jesus can have. The, the Philippians lived there. Paul was visiting. He left. They lived there. So I think it's fair to guess that they experienced persecution. The, the believers in Macedonia, he talks about in, in his letter to Corinth, Philippi was was in the region of Macedonia. They were experiencing a severe test of affliction. So they got this. They understood that this is not, oh yeah, I, I, I prayed a prayer, I I raised my hand, I believed in Jesus, and it's like, what is that sacrifice? Now they understood following Jesus costs a lot. The the offering that, that was on the altar is pictured as their faith, their trust, their dependence on Jesus. Paul's picturing himself as that drink offering that's poured out on the sacrifice. In this way, he makes their believing in Jesus, their believing in the Gospel, the central thing, his own life of sacrificial service, and you read Paul's story, you read what he went through, what he endured, what he suffered for the sake of the name of Jesus. He says all that, it's merely an accompaniment that goes with the main sacrifice. Faith, believing in the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sinners, that is a pleasing offering to the Lord. And the apostles' life of service merely complements their faith. Paul had stated in chapter 1 that he was in prison. He didn't know if he was to live or to die. That was a real possibility where he was. To live would mean necessary, fruitful labor, serving you. To depart and be with Christ, he says, that, that would be my choice. That is far better. That is gain. Here he pictures the potential of his martyrdom as a drink offering poured out on the faith of this church. 2 Timothy is clear that he pictures his martyrdom as a drink offering being poured out. 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is probably the last letter Paul wrote, very close to his execution. He says, 2 Timothy 4 verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, again, he's got his eyes fixed on Jesus, his Lord, who's coming back. There's a day. Here in in Philippians, his future is much less certain he he actually thinks i think i will be released but execution is a real possibility but his response so he's not certain what's going to happen but his response to the potential of his martyrdom is clear what would we expect how would we respond in in prison awaiting trial don't know the outcome <laughs> I would expect things like fear, at least apprehension, maybe maybe a request for urgent prayer. You gotta get me out of here. Somehow. Paul is joyful. We find joy. He's he's looking at the potentials, looking at the possibilities. He doesn't say, man, if I if I get released, that's going to be a day of celebration. No, he says, if I get, yes, but if I get martyred, what's my response? Joy. Paul is joyful and he rejoices together with them. He says, I'm inviting you into my joy. I am looking at this with joy. I am looking at this not like, oh no, my life is going to be cut short. Look at what I'm going to potentially miss out on. No, he says, what an honor to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of your faith, on the offering of your faith. What a high and holy privilege. What a joy. And we would reciprocally expect sorrow and sadness on their part as this news of, yeah, I might be executed. Instead, He invites them into His joy. He invites them to respond with joy and to rejoice together with Him. Reciprocal joy. This is grounds for holy joy. In the Bible, wine is connected with joy. God causes Psalm 104, wine to gladden the heart of man. You see that in Ecclesiastes and Zechariah throughout the Old Testament. Wine is bottled. Just think about this for a minute. Wine is bottled not in order to sit on a shelf in a dusty cellar, but to be opened and poured out to celebrate. Paul looks at his life that way. It's a life to be lived, open, poured out for others, like, like his Lord Jesus. This is an occasion for celebration. And he invites us to rejoice over that which is truly grounds for rejoicing. What is your hope fixed on? That should shape how you view circumstances. It clearly shapes how Paul views his circumstances. This is an opportunity for celebration, for joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for showing us that this life is not all there is. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless, says the preacher, Ecclesiastes. What is the point if it's just what happens under the sun? And yet we know in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Thank you for the hope of the gospel that there is a day coming. The day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, you're coming back for your bride, the church. And Lord, we long for, we anticipate, we look forward to that day when you return and take us. that I go to prepare a place for you? I'm coming back to bring you to where I am. That where I am, you may be with me forever. What a high and holy hope we have of your return, of the consummation of our salvation that we get to spend eternity with you. Lord, help that perspective to shape every circumstance, every trial, every disappointment, every struggle we face here and now. And thank you that you promise to be with us through the trial. We can live in step with the gospel because you are working in us to will So help us to lean into the supernatural divine strength that you are minute by minute supplying to us as we step out in faith and run the race with endurance. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord help us to live this reality out day by day as we as we seek to lift our eyes up above the circumstances keep our eyes fixed on you help us to live in light of eternity And to be willing to spend and be spent for the good of others. Jesus, you showed us what that looks like. Help us to follow in your footsteps by the the supernatural strength supplied in us by the Holy Spirit. Because we, we can't do it without you. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for the gospel that sets us free to belong to you so that we can live lives that actually are a fragrant aroma, pleasing to you. Make it so in us, we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'm going to invite some of the men to come and prepare to serve us. communion, uh, an opportunity to remember uh, the gospel. Bring us back again, bring us back over and over again to what is it all about, what is why are we gathering, how, how are we the church we're gospel people, we've been purchased with the blood of Christ we're all different, we Love different things. We do different things. We have different abilities and we're different. We're diverse. That's a beautiful thing because we're on the same page when it comes to Jesus. He makes us one, different people knit together in one because of Jesus' death on the cross in my place. What we have all in common is we're all a bunch of filthy, rotten sinners that deserve hell. And we got no way out. But God has made a way. The only way. Jesus paid my price. So that whoever believes. Whoever throws himself on the mercy of God. Trusts only and completely in Jesus. Whoever believes has. As a present possession today. Eternal life. Jesus defines eternal life as relationship. Relationship. Not length, not duration. It is that, but what it's really all about is relationship with Him, with His Father. This is eternal life that you know. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, John 17 eternal life is relationship and we are invited into relationship with the God who loves us we get to commune we call this communion because this is a way we commune with the Father and with His Son we receive a good gift that He's given us Jesus broken and poured out for us we receive Him into ourselves and He comes in and changes us so as, as, if you're a believer in Jesus, if your trust is, is in him alone, you're welcome to take bread, take juice, hold those, reflect on what he did for you as a sinner, his amazing grace. Reflect on that. And once we've all been served, we'll, uh, we'll take that together as a body of Christ. Jesus, what a gift. We hold in our hands today. That God Himself would come to become human flesh and blood, so that Jesus, you would lay down your life for sinners that flesh and blood human body would be nailed to a cross and die. Because that's what I deserve. That should have been me. You took my place. You took the punishment I deserved. because you paid my price, you can offer me life, eternal life, life in relationship with you. Thank you for the gift. We can't merit it. We can't earn it. We can't pay it off. We simply receive it and say thank you. Thank you for giving your life so that we could have life. So that we could enjoy today's relationship with you. We receive a good gift from your hand and we say thank you. His body broken for you. Take a His blood poured out to wash us clean, to make us new.